God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. My name is Lauren Nelson. I'm an alcoholic. Hi. This is probably the most, this is probably the most spontaneous, unplanned roundup meeting that you'll ever attend. Coming to roundup is kind of like going on a 12-step call. You never know what to expect. And this afternoon at 4 o'clock, we had a quick meeting and decided that because of the registration that we probably should provide a place for an additional meeting of 500 people because we expected to have about 500 more than we could see. And it wasn't too hard of a problem getting some people together to chair the meeting and also to speak. We had some of the best people in the country sitting in the room giving us advice on what we should do. So we did come up with a chairman. We did come up with a speaker. I would like to open the meeting by reading the fifth chapter, how it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to the simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hang on to our old ideas, and the result was nil, until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power, that one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, 
were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. 7. Humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. 8. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. 9. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. 10. Continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Many of us exclaimed, What an order! I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventure before and after make clear three pertinent points. A. That we were alcoholic and could not manage our lives. B. That probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. C. That God could and would if he were sought. The members of Alcoholics Anonymous make a point of carrying the message about their own recovery in AA on a person-to-person basis, but never disclose the membership of others. In this way, they may serve as examples of recovery and thus stimulate active alcoholics to seek help. In public media, however, such as TV, radio, films, and the press, AA Traditions urges members to maintain strict anonymity for three reasons. One, we have learned from our own experience that the active alcoholic will shun any source of help which might reveal his identity. Two, past events indicate that those alcoholics who seek public recognition as AA members may drink again. Three, public attention and publicity for individual members of AA would invite self-serving competition and conflict over differing personal views. There are a couple of um, uh, announcements. The uh, big book meeting in Winnipeg, Canada, will be held October 7th, 8th, and 9th. There's a fifth annual Red River Valley Roundup August 12th, 13th, and 14th. The Founders Day Banquet uh, will be held in Minneapolis, and I don't have the date on that, I'm sorry. Duluth Roundup is September 16th, 17th, and 18th. One other announcement. Uh, the tapes of all the speakers will be available. If you order the tapes tonight or the time of the speech, right after the speech, they'll be ready within a half hour so that you can order tapes of any of the talks that you heard during the Roundup. The next uh, scheduled meeting for the Gopher State Roundup will be tomorrow morning 
at 10 o'clock. And that's in the Great Hall. After the meeting tonight, uh, we're going to have another meeting from midnight on. I won't mention who's chairing that until after the meeting. But I think you know. I just have one feeling tonight. Um, if I somebody had told me a few years ago that I would be attending an AA roundup, I wouldn't have believed it, and I would have thought it was impossible. Four hours ago, if somebody had told me that I would be uh, opening the meeting and, and serving as a uh, voice of the roundup, I would have said it was impossible because we already had one. But funny things happen in AA, and I think that the people are here in this meeting tonight for a reason, and I think before the night is over, we'll probably know what that reason is. But I believe that things really work the way they're meant to work for a reason. I'm awfully happy to be here. I don't know of any place in the whole world I'd rather be right now than here, including the Great Hall. I don't think that it takes any introduction for the man that I'm going to introduce, because he's already been introduced several times already. But uh, the meeting at 4 o'clock came up with... Uh, it was kind of funny because they didn't want to, they were afraid that maybe they would present a chairman and a speaker that would be so powerful that we'd have the same problem here that they have in the other room, that there'd be 27 or 37 people in here. So we tried to play it down. But Julian, <laughs> Julian B. is the chairman. I'd like to introduce Julian. My name is Julian Bosman, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm glad to be here. Some of you may not be this proud of it. But as a matter of fact, I feel like an old fellow who went to the lodge meeting down home. And my age and what I've been through, I'm glad to be anywhere. I think it's good for the chairman to qualify a little once in a while, and I... I told you people, some of you was back so far that you couldn't see me the other night. I'm glad you got a good look at me in here. And I'm not going to ask you if you can hear me in the back. The last time I did that, some fellow hollered no. And a fellow down front said, I can. I'll trade seats with you. <laughs> but I, I started drinking a long time ago. As a matter of fact, I started drinking back in the bloomer days. Some of you people here and remember that far back. And I come from down in the hills of Virginia, and they made bloomers out of flower sacks. And I really don't know if I had an alcoholic problem at this time, but I began to have trouble about the time self-rising flower come out. <laughs> and, and I had trouble from then on, every time I drank. I come from a small town, and our speaker did too, he says. I don't know sure about this fellow. But I, I, it's a little strange down where I come from. If you think I'm a little off base, you ought to see some of those other characters down there. It's a small town, and it's a tourist town, and the local people don't have much to do with the tourists. 
we they think that we are a little off base, and we think that they are. I live in Luray, Virginia, which is known back on the East Coast for the Luray Caverns. And people from all over the world come there to see the Luray Caverns. We charge them $5 and $25 for a place to stay all night and charge them $5 to see a hole in the ground. We don't think that's very bright either. So that makes us even, but things that go on in my small town, to tell you about how it goes, we have a group of the local yokels that gather at the bridge every night. There's a bridge in the middle of the town, and they discuss the problems of the world. But if a stranger walks up, they stop talking. And one of our tourists had seen the hole in the ground, and that's all it's there. After you've seen that, you might as well go on. <laughs> And uh, he started a conversation, stopped when he walked up, and he said, good evening, and they said, howdy. Is that one fellow? He said, uh, what's your name? And he told him, he said, lived here all your life? He said, not yet. <laughs> so another one, he says, you live here? He said, I've been away for 40 years. I came back here to... He said, oh, you come back home to die? He said, no, if I knew where I was going to die, I wouldn't go there. <laughs> now, this is about the conversation you get at the bridge or at a country store. And some of you may think that I'm a little strange, but uh, imagine what other people think of you. I mean by that, here you sit with the most dreaded disease in the world, the first, second, or third killer in our country, and you're sitting here laughing about it. <laughs> Just like I, I, I see a lot of normal people now doing things that I take notice of. I didn't when I was drinking. Such as you'll see or hear some normal person that don't drink, run around looking for their keys or something, say they'll be the last place I look. It'd be real bright to go on looking for them after you found them. But I think stuff like this I notice now. I mean, I, I on the way to the airport, coming up here, I my wife drove me to the airport. Incidentally, she isn't with me. I'd like for you to meet her, but... Bringing your wife to one of these things, kind of like going hunting with a game warden. <laughs> I, uh, she was bringing me to the airport, and we drove into a filling station. Now, these are normal people. You go in, the cash register's half open. The money laying on there. The safe door is ajar, and the toilet's locked. <laughs> did, 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 did you ever? This is this is the way normal people operate. And I say I began to notice these things. 
And I noticed this about my drinking. I, I, I began to see me doing things that other people didn't do. And I used to go back to the mountains, as I say, to sober up. Told you that last night. And my mother was, bless her soul, thought that if her children come to the table, they were doing pretty good. And I was doing real good if I got to the table. But I'd go and eat. So she wouldn't think her son was going to die. And I'd eat and run. And after I was there, about three days, when I'd come out the house, the chickens would follow me. I mean, I'd eat something would throw up easy because I knew what was going to happen. But I'd go back to the country and I'd go to sober up and I'd go to get drunk. I did a lot of great things when I was drinking. I was a great fighter. I was a poor judge of size, but uh, I never won many, but I got in a lot. I was a great deer hunter. And I used to save up and buy liquor to go deer hunting. I didn't always get shells, but I I, I, uh, I hunted deer for 35 years never did get one. You'd think as much as I laid out in the woods drunk, one would have laid down by me and died. <laughs> but we had quite a time back there in the mountains, and really, I, uh, I, I found out after I got in here, I found out a lot of things after I got to AA. I found out that I was finding what I was hunting. I'd find still, and I'd stay with them all day. I remember one morning I was hunting, I had my gun with me, and uh, I run into an old boy running off a little batch back there in the mountain, and I was getting real sick, and I said, walked up, and he said, have a drink, and he had me a drink, and it didn't set very good. I was too sick, and I couldn't stand it. So he came back, and I sat down on a log and was holding my eyes to keep him from flying out, and <laughs> Sat there a few minutes, and he says, now try it. It's got some age on it. <laughs> it, uh, it. It really must have improved. I stayed with him all day. I was just telling Cease. Incidentally, he thinks he's going to talk. <laughs> this is anticipation. You know, you, you sit there and wonder what he's got to say. And uh, you may have to stay till after midnight to find out. <laughs> I don't get a chance this far away from home to talk to this many people very often. We got a small group. But when I first came in, I was telling him that I thought it was a Catholic disease. They took me on a retreat with them. And I listened to all that they had to say, and I don't know. They went through the stations of the cross and the recharged the beads and a lot. I don't know what all they did, but uh, whatever it was, I went through with it. Now, this was a mystery to me, and I didn't know whether I was going to be able to stay sober or not, because back where I came from, in the mountains, we didn't, very frankly, we didn't know what a Catholic was. That one retired and came back there one time, and he, he fixed up a place back in the mountain. And he heard himself. A couple of boys heard about it, and he went back to see him and said, uh, Father, we heard that you had hurt yourself. What happened? He said, I'm kind of ashamed to tell you, boys. He said, I fell off the commode and broke my arm. <laughs> 
They didn't say a word, you know. They started back down the mountain, and one of them said to the other one, says, what's a commode? <laughs> he says, uh, he says, how do you think I know? I ain't no Catholic. <laughs> so that's how far back in the mountain we were. A lot of things happened back there that you wouldn't believe if I told you. My brother was the worst drunk than I was. I mean by that that he, he had DTs when they first come out, I mean. <laughs> And he had some good ones. <laughs> now, I, uh, I, I say I sobered up down there, and I noticed that I couldn't, and it's a very rocky country down there in the mountain, and I got to the point of where I couldn't walk by a rock when I was sobering up without looking under it. And I didn't know what I was looking for. And I noticed other people wasn't doing this. And this began to worry me. And I said today, and I still think this is true, that I I had no trouble with my drinking. I had my trouble sobering up. I mean, that is what drove me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know yet, and I've been sober a long time, and I ain't for sure how it works, but it works. And if you're new, you don't have to know how it works. Just go to meetings. Don't work it, let it. A lot of you people here tonight don't know what's in Epsom sauce, but you take enough of it, it'll work. I mean, it, it, you don't know what, have to know what makes it work. I think maybe that I, I, I might consider letting Cease talk a few minutes. But I would like for you to know that I am still glad to be able to talk and to meet and to talk with you people. They ask us to do this meeting for the overflow, and I think it's quite possible they got ceased to, so there wouldn't so many come over here. I, I really don't know. And he's so far, from, as far as I'm concerned, I was up to his place one time, and and maybe you people know him, but uh, I imagine that the people that I know from down south thinks maybe he speaks like an Eskimo from where he comes from. But I've heard him talk, and I really like to hear him. So I believe I'll give him a few minutes. And just for those of you that don't know, you've got a treat coming to you. But I've heard him several times. I thought he was a little wacky the first time. <laughs> Don't expect too much. I mean, you wouldn't be on my program. <laughs> but I say I heard him in Florida, and uh, he can talk good in hot weather, and he was way away from home then. He's closer now. I don't know just what might happen, but I'll give you a seat. Coming on after Junior, I feel like a little bit like Elizabeth Taylor's next husband's going to feel like. I know what's expected of me, but I don't know how to make it interesting anymore. 
<laughs> He's quite a boy, I'll tell you. And Julian and I have been privileged to be many places together, and I dearly love the man, and I, I, I just wished he'd gone on for a little longer because he knows a lot of those hillbilly stories, and and believe it or not, most of them are true. And that's the, I don't know whether the fortunate or unfortunate thing, but I've been to Virginia, and I, I know. I've checked them out. <laughs> he talks about my country, but... Well, I'm too, I've been in AA long enough to talk about other people's countries, so I will just, you know, dispense with that, because after you grow a little while, you don't go around, you know, making fun of other people's country. So, I wouldn't say anything about that. But uh, I'm real glad to be here, and I feel that. Uh, a little bit inadequate, you know, they, they, uh, three times in our city and back home in Prince Albert, they have every year a citizen of the year. And for three years in a row, friends of mine became citizen of the year. And they have to have a speaker to talk on their behalf at this big banquet. And I always got to this speaker. <laughs> But I never got to be citizen of the year. <laughs> and I come to this big affair down here, and I was here twice as chairman. First year, it was here, I was the chairman. Second year, I was chairman. Thought I did a hell of a job. <laughs> and eventually, they said, you know, if you notice, the chairman this year will be the speaker's next year. But I never did get to be the speaker. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to figure out. I keep coming back and my own expense and everything. And, but today they ran out. <laughs> and I was so happy that they were trying to find a chairman. And I said, never mind, I'll introduce myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I know some people don't know me, but don't feel bad. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of a joke. It doesn't really. I intended to tell it all along. <laughs> and I only tell it because there's some of my very, very dear friends who are here tonight. There have been many, many places where I've been privileged to speak. And I've told this story, and they just don't understand it. <laughs> And, and there's one over there, she's starting to laugh already. She doesn't know what the hell she's laughing at because she doesn't understand this joke. Her husband told me, he said, see, tell it again because, because she just doesn't understand. And the story's about a, a sweet old lady that, that bought a parrot. And she bought this parrot and, and she found out after she'd paid a lot of money for the parrot, took the parrot home, she found out that the parrot couldn't talk. You see, she set about teaching this parrot how to talk. And finally she got the parrot to say three words. And those three words were, who is it? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's uh, just like I was standing out there in the lobby and I heard them say, well, uh, they're going to have an overflow meeting. I wonder who the speaker is, you know. 
and I'm a very humble man. I didn't jump up and say, I am. I just stood there. And, and uh, But it, it, it was sort of the same as the parrot. You know, the, the parrot would go around all day long in the house. Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? You know, and the old lady used to get a little upset, but after all, she'd taught the parrot how to say these three words, and so she went along with it. But one day she went downtown. And while she was downtown, a knock came to the door. And the parrot says, who is it? And the voice goes back. He says, it's the plumber. The parrot says, who is it? And he says, it's the plumber. The parrot says, who is it? And he says, it's the plumber. P-L-U-M-B-E-R, plumber. Francis with it? <laughs> and, the, and the old plumber said, look it. You phoned me. You said it was an emergency. I told you I couldn't come. You said you just have to come. Now, I'm a busy man. Open the door. Let me in because I gotta have to get out and do my work. Francis with it? <laughs> and the old plumber wasn't on the program. He lost his serenity. And he just was so mad. He just fainted dead away right in front of the door. And the old lady came home and she looks down and she said, who is it? <laughs> and out of the house comes a voice, it's the plumber. <laughs> so, <laughs> so explain it to that sweet lady over there by the post. <laughs> I'm not your plumber, but I'm your speaker for tonight and perhaps I should get on with it. <laughs> My name is Cease Corkle, and I'm from Prince Alvis, Saskatchewan, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm very grateful to be here, even if it isn't the overflow meeting. I just finally got to speak in Minneapolis. And I'm very, very glad and grateful that they had to have an overflow meeting. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous many years ago. I came when I was 27 years of age. And because of the beautiful program of Alcoholics Anonymous, because of beautiful people like you, because of a loving God as I understand them, I haven't had to have a drink since January the 16th, 1952. And for this I'm very grateful. And I didn't just wake up one morning and decide <laughs> at 27 years of age, and I hate to mention that now because they're coming in much younger, but at that time there wasn't anybody younger in my group or in my province. And when I came in, as I say, I just didn't wake up one morning and, and say, well, I wonder what I'll do today and, and say, by golly, I, I think I'll join Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. <laughs> That's not how it happened. And there was a <clears throat> fellow last night from way down there, Mississippi or Louisiana or somewhere. And he told a joke about the three alcoholic rabbits. And he messed it up bad. <laughs> and for you people who were there, I would like to apologize, but for you people who went there, and I'd like to apologize for him for telling the joke wrong, <clears throat> but that's really a joke that I took down there, and he didn't know I was in the audience last night. <laughs> but I, I was I was something like the three alcoholic rabbits, 
I don't know whether you've ever heard of the three alcoholic rabbits or not, but there was foot, and there was foot, foot, and there was foot, foot, foot. <laughs> and foot, foot, foot used to phone up foot, foot, and he'd say, what do you think we should do tonight? And foot, foot would say to foot, 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 well, let's pick a little foot, and we'll go down to the bar. So foot, 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 and foot, foot would pick up foot, and they'd go down to the bar, and one night foot, 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 foot was sitting talking, and foot, foot, foot said to foot, foot, he said, where's foot? Foot, foot, said to foot, 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 he said, well, old foot was here just a minute ago, and he went outside, and foot, 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 they went outside, and they found foot, and foot was dead, so foot, foot, said to foot, 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 he said, what do you think we should do with foot, and foot, 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 said to foot, foot, well, he said, I think we should take him down to the funeral home, and after the funeral, foot, foot, said to foot, 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 he said, what do you think old foot died from, foot, 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 said to foot, foot, he said, well, I think he was an alcoholic, foot, foot, said to foot, 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 he said, do you think we're alcoholics, and foot, 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 said to foot, foot, he said, by golly, I think we are, so foot, foot, said to foot, 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 he said, do you think we should join Alcoholics Anonymous, and foot, 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 said to foot, foot, might as well, we got one foot in the grave anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what I thought about Alcoholics Anonymous when I came, I thought you had to have one foot in the grave, and... And I'm not going to tell you too much about my drinking because I don't think it's important. Uh, I, th- I can tell you one thing that I'm not here by mistake. <laughs> I'm privileged to have with me tonight a couple of friends. And I want you to know that the great big fellow over here, Les, I'd like you to stand up. And, <laughs> Les has been sober for <clears throat> about six, seven months, and I want you to know Les fired me one time for drinking. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so I got proof right in the room that I drank a little too much. <laughs> but I... I uh, the reason I don't really tell my story, it's it's something like, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard the story about the, the circus that was going through this small town, something like a town that my friend the hillbilly comes from, and, and the, uh, the elephant roamed away from the circus, and it roamed into a sweet old lady's backyard, and it got into her cabbage. She'd never seen an elephant before. And and they start ripping up her cabbage. And she phoned the chief of police, and, and she said, there's a strange animal in my backyard. And she said, a strange-looking thing. He's about the size of four or five horses. But he's really a strange-looking animal. She says, he, he has a tail on both ends. <laughs> and, they, and he's in the cabbage patch. And so the chief of police, like most chief of police, he wanted to say something intelligent. So he said, he said, well, what is this strange animal doing to your cabbage? And she said, you wouldn't believe it if I told him. (laughs) (laughs) And that sounded like my drinking story. I doubt if you would believe it. <laughs> but it, it was so nice to see the everybody at, at this conference. You know, they, they've got more than they expected, but it, you've noticed the unity that they've had here. And, and, you know, everybody, when they announced this meeting tonight, you didn't hear any squawking or anything. People came over here, and everything that's happened, it, 
it's just just happened, and you know, with smiles on her face and everything. And I think I think that's so important because you know it, it's so important that we be on good terms with our fellow man each and every day. I found this out, and as you get a little older, you'll find it out a little bit more. And it reminds me of the story of the <laughs> of the golfer, and this golfer was sitting in this clubhouse one day, and and he was really really feeling feeling bad. And there's nobody else in, and he's sitting there, and and he said, "Oh God." The voice came back and said, what's the matter? <laughs> and he looked up and he said, is that you, God? God said, yes. And he said, well, I'm just having a bad time. He said, I'm having a bad time. can't putt. So God said, well, next time you go out, just, you know, move your right hand just a little bit. And I'm sure everything will be all right. So while he was talking to God, he thought, well, I best say a few more things and find out a few things. And he said, tell me, God, he said, do they have a golf course up in heaven? And God said, well, just a second, I'll go and check. So he come back and he said, I got some good news and I got some bad news. And uh, he said, first of all, for the good news. He said, we have the finest, the best golf course that I've ever seen. And the golfer said, well, what can be the bad news? And he said, your tee off time is ten after eight tomorrow morning. <laughs> So it's important that that we be on good terms with each other, because we never know when our tee-off time is going to be. And it's kind of important that we live live each and every day that way, and I've learned that in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't, as I told you, I didn't just decide one morning to join Alcoholics Anonymous. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because... I was in a hospital. I wasn't in hospital for alcoholism. I want you to know that. I was in hospital because I was like Julian. I got in a few fights. The last year I drank, I had 17 fights, 17 knockouts, and I lost them all. <laughs> and, but the last fight I had was a fella that he weighed about 275 pounds. I thought he weighed about 118 and I was a poker player when I was drinking. I thought I was pretty good. And I was in this big poker game, and I lost a lot of money that wasn't mine. And I did some things in the poker game that this big fella didn't like. And he was a little narrow, though, things like this. <laughs> and he got up, and he said something to me, and I said something back to him. And he hit me, and I hit the floor. And, <laughs> and uh, I got up, and... He did the same thing once again. I did the same thing once again. And we did that about ten times. And finally, I decided that I best stay down. Not because I wanted to, but because I couldn't get up. <laughs> and that's why I went to hospital. And you know, you hear a lot of people make fun of doctors. Well, I want you to know that that little doctor was a friend of mine because I'd been in the service with him. And he sat down beside me and... Tell me after five days in hospital when he got my bruises kind of straightened around it. Got me filled up the intravenous. He said, Cease, I can't do anything more for you. He said, I built you up physically. And he said, What? You'd better do is do something about your drinking because he said, I think you're an alcoholic. 
He said, I was in the service with you. You were bad then. You certainly haven't improved since you arrived home. And he said, I would suggest that you do something about it. I said, what will I do? And he said, well, I would suggest that you join Alcoholics Anonymous. And he didn't leave it at that. He went out and he got a couple of fellas to come see me. And I'll be ever grateful because two fellas came to see me, two fellas that I knew very, very well. Both of them are at Stryker. One, I, I believe, was without a word of a lie. He was the sloppiest drunk in all accounts. But I associated with high-class people, and so I drank with <laughs> But that night, he was dressed up, and he looked good. Now, I still remember how he looked. He had a nice brown suit on and a silk shirt and bow tie. His shoes were shiny. His hair was cold and was clean. He looked real good. The other fellow was a chap I'd been in service with. And he came back from service, and he got in a little trouble with the law. A robbery with violence when he was drinking. And he got five years in our penitentiary. And he fought Alcoholics Anonymous in the penitentiary. And he was the other guy that came to see me. And I knew that something had happened to Earl. Because he was different. And they talked to me. And I, I had a private ward that I'd given a bad check for. Okay. I like to live first class. And I didn't want them talking too loud, but they talked too loud because I thought the whole city would learn out, learn that I was going to join Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't want anybody to know what I drank. <laughs> and I was in a Catholic hospital. And I want you to know that that's the reason that I am an alcoholic. Because I grew up in a Catholic community. And I'm a Protestant. <laughs> and I was the only Protestant in there. But anyway, I tried to pay this money back, and I was having a tough time. And I, I was doing really well. I thought in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because people were patting me on the back, and people were telling me that I was doing such a good job, and I'd meet the civilians out, and I would tell them what I'd done, and they'd pat me on the back, stay with it, please, and my God, I got a better job, and things started to really happen. And then all of a sudden, a horrible, horrible, horrible thing happened in our group. Some younger members came in. <laughs> and they walked right by me and started talking to the old members. And the older members walked by me and started talking to new members. And they left me standing out in the little floor. Just like a hole in a donut. I was nothing. <laughs> and I thought, well, go out and, you know, practice a little bit and coming back and getting all that treatment again. But thank God I didn't. Because just about that time we had a fellow in our group and I talk about him all of the time. You have heard me, you have heard me before. Well, no, I talk about him all the time because he meant so much to me. Ernie has now gone around this. Greater Roundup. His name was Ernie Sear. And we asked Ernie if Ernie would, if he would share the meetings in our group for three months. And Ernie said, we have discussion meetings, and then he said, well, he would if we would do one thing. And we said, what's that? And he said, well, I'll share the meetings if we will start at step one, and we will start to take the steps from the big book, and we will not finish 
We'll use, no matter who comes into AA, we're not going to go back to step one. We'll take that person and we'll sponsor them properly. And when we start the steps again, he can start or she can start on the steps again. Then we looked at Ernie a little strange, and then we thought, well, we'll humor it along. We'll go along with it. And so we did. And that is the greatest experience that I've ever had in my life. And that is the experience that I want to share with you tonight, what happened to me through the beautiful recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 suggested steps to recovery. And we took a look at step one, where it said we admitted we're powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And I found out that there were two parts to step one. I didn't know that before. I had admitted that I was powerless over alcohol when I came through the door of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know about anything about the unmanageable part of my life, about the unmanageability of my life. And I found out that I had an unmanageable life in Alcoholics Anonymous. And so many people, you know, think that God, you join Alcoholics Anonymous and everything's fine. Everything's just great. Everything's going to be okay. And you hear young people today saying the first one up this morning is the oldest member in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't go along with that stuff. Because if some old geezer like me do something wrong, and it doesn't matter what time I got up, how late I slept. <laughs> They'll say, look at that old fella. <laughs> Been sober 25 years, look what he's doing. So you see, you don't get wild the moment that you come here. And I sure didn't. And I used to say, it took me 11 years, because that's all I drank, to get as sick as I was. So it's going to take me that to get well. And all of a sudden, I was sober 12 years, and I was still sick. <laughs> you know. So I'm just telling you that, don't you young ones, don't make that statement, because it'll catch up with you if you stay sober. But anyway, I looked at this unmanageability in my life, and I found out that I had an unmanageable life as far as money was concerned. Now, I know none of you people in Minneapolis area in Minnesota have problems with money. <laughs> but I had an unmanageable life as far as money was concerned. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous owing this money. After I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, my boss took me to the bank, endorsed my note, and paid everybody that we owed money to. They didn't let me pay them. They, he and the bank manager sent the checks. And he made my wife and I sign a little deal that we would pay cash for everything that we bought. Three years later, he bailed me out for $7,500. <laughs> for you see, I had an unmanageable life with money. And financial problems are a bad, bad thing. Financial problems caused me to be something that I didn't want to be in an alcoholic anonymous. It caused me to be a thief and a cheat and a foul ball and a phony. And it just has to, because you have to tell lies if you've got financial problems. And I know there's people in the, in the room tonight that maybe have financial problems. And I'll share my experience with you because I found out that financial problems had nothing to do with money. I found out that it had a lot to do with big shotism. I found out that it had a lot to do with ego. I found out that it had a lot to do with pride. For you see, I was the type of driver who owed somebody $40. I wanted to pay them for the $40 right now. I had too much pride to go and say, I can only afford to pay you 20 
and I was too egotistical, and I was too much of a big shot. And when I went to buy something, you know, I wanted the very best. I couldn't afford the down payment on the very worst, but I wanted the best because I was a big shot. But I found this out through this first step of Alcoholics Anonymous, that I had this unmanageable life. And to show you that I've changed just a little bit, not so many years ago, I owed a manufacturer $10,000. That's not a lot of money in my business because I'm in the fur coat business. But it's a lot of money in the middle of July when it's about 96 in the shade. <laughs> and this fellow was writing me letters and he was phoning me. And he was saying strange things like a padlock on the door and sheriffs and stuff like that. And I decided that I should write him a letter. And I wrote him a letter and told him that I liked his merchandise and that I would like fall dating on it. And I told him that I'd sold some in the layaway plan with small deposits and that I would pay him, but he'd just have to give me some time. And then I threw a bit of philosophy at him and I said if I had ten miles to walk down a railroad track, it would seem like a long way. But if I took it a telephone pole at a time, it would maybe be seem a little long. But I would finally get there. And I signed it, yours truly, Cecil E. Corville, Mines of the Cease Corville Fur Clinic, P.S. I'm enclosing a certified check for $100. And I sent it away. Three, four days later, I got a letter back. That's when the postal services were acting properly. <laughs> and they sent me a letter back, and this fellow congratulated me on my letter writing ability. <laughs> he suggested that I get out of the fur business, go writing letters for somebody. <laughs> and he signed it, yes, truly. <laughs> Maura Amsel from Amsel and Amsel, Montreal. And then he put a P.S. Would you mind sending me another telephone call? <laughs> you know... I tell that story and I want everybody to listen because not only is this for the overflow, they're not taping this meeting. That hurts me too. <laughs> you want to have another chance to listen. But I owe Mo Ham's a lot of money right today. And I can send him a lot of telephone poles if I want. Because I learned how to handle this situation. And then they took me on a step too and they said came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. They had told me that when I first went in, they said it's a positive program. You know, everything's positive. You quit thinking negative and you start to think positive. And all of a sudden, they're telling me that I've got an unmanageable life, that I'm powerless. Next, they tell me that I have to come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. You know, they're, so they're telling me I'm crazy. And, and, and at the same time, they're telling me to be positive. And then I have to do all of these things, and it's a little confusing. But, you know, I was stupid enough to do what they told me to do. And if any of you people are real smart, and you're having a tough time, get stupid. <laughs> do what they tell you to do. And so I found that after I had an unmanageable life, step two, they said, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore my sanity. 
Some guy said, came to, so you come to. <laughs> then you come to believe that there's power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. So I said to a guy, well, I've never been in a mental hospital. How can I be insane? Well, he said, see, it's your insane thinking. It's your negative thinking. And uh, I said, well, I guess I am a sort of a negative thinker. And I was sort of like a, the fellow that went to the barber. And he went into his barber shop and he said, like a haircut lasts for three weeks. <laughs> and the barber said, why three weeks? And he said, well, I'm going on vacation. And he said, where are you going? And he said, well, first of all, I'm going to London, England. The Bible says, you're not. He said, yeah. He said, you're not. <laughs> he said, I wouldn't go there if I were you. He said, no, I've never been there. He said, but I heard it's a lousy place to go. Too many people, too many cars. The guy said, look it, I don't care if I don't like it there. I'm going on to Paris. The barber says, you're not going to Paris. He said, I am. He said, you're not. He said, I am. He said, I wouldn't go there if I were you. He said, I understand it really fleets the tourists. No, I've never been there. He said, but this is what I heard. The guy said, look, it just cut my hair. If I don't like it there, I'm going on to Rome. The barber said, you're not going to Rome. <laughs> he said, I am. He said, you're not. He said, I am. So I wouldn't go there if I were you. He said, no, I don't know. I've never been there. He said, but I heard, he said, they, they really, a bunch of Catholics over there. The guy said, look, I don't care. He said, I'm a Catholic. <laughs> yeah, but he said, I heard a different kind of a Catholic over there. <laughs> so so the, guy, the guy got out of the barber chair and away he went. Three weeks later, he come back, slid into the barber chair. Barber said, how was your trip? He said, it was good. He said, what? And he said, what? He said, you didn't go to London. He says, I did. He says, I didn't. He says, I did. He says, you didn't like it. He says, I did. He says, I didn't. He says, I did. He says, as a matter of fact, I'd love to stay long, but I wanted to get on to Paris. He says, you didn't go to Paris. He says, I did. He says, you didn't. He says, I did. And he says, and you liked it there. And he said, but he said, I want to get on to Rome. And he said, the barber says, you didn't go to Rome. He says, I did. He says, you didn't. He says, I did. And he says, as a matter of fact, a great thing happened over there. He said, I got an audience with the Pope. The barber says, you didn't. He says, I did. He says, you didn't. And he says, you'll never believe. He said, what happened? He says, I knelt down and I bent down to kiss the Pope's ring. And he says, you'll never believe what that Pope said. And the barber says, what? And he says, where the hell did you get that lousy haircut? <laughs> something like the barber. You know, I had a negative attitude. But I said, I have an unmanageable life. Here's a manager. Okay. I'll go along with it. They'd say, you got to pray. And I said, who to? And they said, it doesn't matter. Just pray. So I tried that. They said, please in the morning, say thank you at night. I did that. And it worked. I stayed sober. And then they told me that I had to make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood it. I don't know about you people, but I still have a difficult time making decisions. And I think a lot of people do too, especially al I've watched them in the lineups. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to decide what they're going to eat. And the reason we don't want to make decisions is we're afraid of making the wrong decision. Reminds me of a story of a wealthy fellow probably from this area because he had a lot of money. And he, and he went on over to Ireland. And he's walking down the street, and a, and a guy stuck a gun in his back. <laughs> and he said, who am I? And the guy thought real fast, and he thought, well, if I say he's Catholic and he's Protestant, he'll shoot me. If I say he's Protestant and he's Catholic, he'll shoot me. So he says, I'm Jewish. <laughs> and the guy with the gun says, I'm the luckiest Arab in the whole wide world. <laughs> So 
can see sometimes we make the wrong decision. But here they told me to make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood it. Now they threw that word God at me. So what I did is I found out that I had this unmanageable life. Step two, I found a manager. And step three, I said, look, I've made a lousy job of managing my life. How about you taking charge? And this is how simple I had to keep it. And I had to keep things simple because I find out that if I, you know, complicate things, I really louse them up. A friend of mine has a ranch back home. And another friend said to him, well, how did you get the name for your ranch? And he says, well, I wanted to call it the Bar Q. My wife wanted to call it the Susie Q. My son wanted to call it the Bar Susie Q. My daughter wanted to call it Susie Bar Q. So we called it the Bar Q, Susie Q, Susie Bar Q, Bar Susie Q. <laughs> and the guy says, that's a hell of a name, but where are the cattle? And he says, none of them ever survived the branding. <laughs> I had to keep it simple, or I may not have survived the branding. And I find if I, you know, if I louse things up, I, I, if I complicate them, well, I just, just don't get along. So that's how simple I had to keep it. And that's what I did. And then they told me that I had to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of myself. They told me that I had to get a pencil and a paper and I had to write it down. Now, I know a lot of people who if you were like me, and I'm sure some of you were, you have no problems taking other people's inventory. <laughs> but this is, it says, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And I think that to take an inventory, that I have to get a pencil and a paper. And if any of you are having a tough time taking an inventory, I would suggest that first of all, that's the first thing you do, get a pencil and a paper. Some of you may say, there's nothing wrong with me. Write that down. Nothing. Good. And write on it, write down it, you're a liar and you've got to start. <laughs> and I went to this big book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And page 65 of this big book, it told me how to take an inventory. And this is a pretty good book. This one hasn't been used too much, but I hope it doesn't belong to somebody. Because they say if you want to hide something from a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, hide this big book. But uh, this is awful. But in page 65, it told me exactly what to do and how it works. It told me how to take an inventory. And I believe this book. And if you think this is some stupid Canadian propaganda that I'm telling you, I want you to know I bought this book in the United States. <laughs> it came from here. You don't think that I'm bringing some stuff down from Canada and telling you a bunch of garbage. I got your book. But they told me that I had to take this inventory. And I wrote it down and I found out the things that were wrong with me. And it's pretty tough, I find out, to do something about yourself unless you know what's wrong with you. <clears throat> and I found out that there were many things wrong with me. Found out there were some things right with me. Many of you have been connected to some business, and you know when you take an inventory, you take everything that's in stock. In the business of living, we do the same thing in Alcoholics Anonymous, or Al-Anon, or al -Ateen. We take inventory of ourselves, and we mark it down. And this is what I had to do. And I did this. And then they took it on and we went on into the step five. And we were doing this as a group. And it was really a, an experience. Because we didn't want somebody else to get ahead of us. 
that we were doing them. Thank God we were doing it as a group because I don't know whether I'd have done this alone. But we did this. Then they told me that I had to admit to God, to myself, and to another human being the exact nature of my wrongs. And I found out that step five wasn't that difficult. I found out that the toughest thing about step five was step four. <laughs> because when I did step four, I wanted to do step five. And I went and talked to a little preacher, and he was my own preacher, Presbyterian Church, wasn't a Catholic priest, Presbyterian, and uh, I went to him, and, and uh, I thought I would shake him up, because I had some pretty bad things to tell him, but I didn't shake him up at all. As a matter of fact, he shared a few things with me, because he'd been sort of a orangutan his day, too. <laughs> There's only one thing I do notice, he's not preaching anymore, but <laughs> he's now a parole officer. But <clears throat> we became fast friends. And I, I know that I took this fifth step, and I know now why I took it. I took it because I didn't like what was wrong with me. And I found out what was wrong with me in step four. And then they told me another thing in this book. They told me what I was supposed to do when I finished taking my step five, that I was supposed to take this book down from a shelf, and that I was supposed to read steps six and seven, where it says we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And I don't think I was ever more ready, I don't think I was ever more willing, or ever will be, than immediately after I took that step five. Now, I want you to know that you don't have to do it this way. I'm only telling you what we did as a group through this beautiful book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm only sharing an experience with you that happened to me. And I know that I felt that I was willing to do these things. I'm also going to tell you that all of those defects of character didn't disappear. And I'm also going to tell you that in step seven, they said, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. And I found out in step seven that they were talking about something called humility. And if there is any definition for humility for me, it is simply the ability to stand and the willingness to kneel. Well, you see, I found out in step seven that in order to be humble at all, that I had to kneel down. For up until that time, I just couldn't. At one time I heard a speaker, and I'll never forget him. His name was Shy Walker. Julia knew Shy. I heard Shy speak in New York. And Shy talked about how he'd been in a prison. And Shai talked about how he came out of this prison and so much wanted to stay sober. And he talked about how he worked on a construction job and he had these high-top boots. And he talked about how he wanted to kneel down and pray, but he just couldn't. And he told us how, quite by accident, one night he came home and kicked his high-top boots underneath the bed. And he told us how the next morning he got down to get his boots and he got down on his knees. And he thought, by golly, while I'm down here, I'm going to say a few words. 
And then he told us how every night he used to bunk his boots <coughs> underneath the bed so that the next morning he would get down on his knees and he would say a few words. I don't know whether it works with high-top boots because at that time I didn't have any. But I do know that it works with ordinary shoes because I tried it. I don't have to today kick my boots under the bed because I can pray. I'm probably the prayingest member of Alcoholics Anonymous in the world because I have got so much to be grateful. I don't pray too much anymore for old cease other than saying I'm thank you, saying thank you. But I do pray for people that I'm privileged to help. I pray for people that I meet in Alcoholics Anonymous as I'm privileged to go around the country. And then they told me that I had to make another list in step eight of all the people I'd harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. And I made this next list. And I put my own name up top because, you see, I had lost my own self-respect in my own hometown and I had to harm myself. And I found it difficult to forgive myself. I discussed it a little bit with the man when I took my step five. But I found out later on, in a discussion with another member of the cloth, I found out that I could forgive myself. And I harmed many people, and I wrote the list. I made the list. It was a further extension of step four. And then it told me that I had to go out and I had to make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And I went out and I made these amends. And some of you may say tonight, if you're new, you may say, I don't have to do all of that. And that's absolutely right. You don't have to do things. They also told me that Alcoholics Anonymous didn't promise me anything but sobriety. But as I started to study this book, along with a group of people, I found out that Alcoholics Anonymous promises you a few things, a few more things than just sobriety. For on page 83 of this big book, when they're talking about step nine, it tells us if we are painstaking about the phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. It says we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word, comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us 
what we could not do for ourselves. And you see, I want freedom. For you see, I didn't have it. As I used to walk down this main drag of our little town, and our main drag is perhaps a half a mile long. But when I went down it before, I did this program. It used to be about ten miles long. For you see, I would meet people that I couldn't meet. And I would have to go to the other side of the street. I'd meet somebody on that side of the street and I'd have to duck back. Finally, I would see people coming from both sides and I'd have to go to a back alley. And that's hard work. Today, because of this beautiful program called Alcoholics Anonymous, I can walk down the main drag of any city in the world with my head up high because I was privileged to do those beautiful first nine steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then it went on to the maintenance steps. And it told me that each and every day that I had to continue to take a personal inventory and when I was wrong, I had to promptly admit it. And that has been a fairly easy step for me. For you see, especially admitting that I was wrong. I found out that that step probably did more for me than anything else in the world. For you see, I don't like admitting I'm wrong. <laughs> and I find out that I don't do as many things as I used to do to be wrong. <laughs> And so I don't have to do it as often as I should have done it before. So it improved my life greatly. But each and every night, what I have to do no matter where I am, I have to take this book and I have to take an inventory of cease. And I've been sober for over 25 years. And sometimes I think I may be sicker than other people. Because I know a lot of people that don't have to do that. But I have to do it. I have to do it because I want everything that is coming to me from Alcoholics Anonymous. For you see, like a little guy by the name of Bill the other night in our group, he said he went through life chipping himself when we were studying the steps. And he said he's not going to jip himself any longer. He wants what is coming to him. And I feel like little Bill, and I hope that you people feel that way. Not only, I don't care whether you're an Al-Anon or Alcoholics Anonymous or Alateen. It's all the same program. And then they told me that I had to seek through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as I understood him. Praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. The very fact that I can say that is a miracle. But the fact that I know what it means is a bigger miracle. Because, you see, I know what prayer means to me today. Prayer simply means to me is talking to my loving God as I understand it. I don't know what it means to you. That's your problem. But this is what it means to me. I know what meditation is. It's shutting my big mouth and listening for answers. And each and every morning... I have to go into a little room and I have to sit down in my home and I have to take out this big book 
and I read page 86, and I read page 87, and I read page 88. I read the simple little prayer of step 3 on page 63. And I read the prayer for step 7 on page 76. And I read a vision for you, the last part of a vision for you from page 164. And you may wonder, well, why does he have to do that? I have to do that because I want to walk comfortably that day. For you see, it's usually in the morning that something can happen. And you can live a lousy day because if you don't start out right. I can tell you a story about one time I was going to work. And I was having an argument with a guy that was 1,300 miles away from me. <laughs> That's not bad, but I was arguing out loud. <laughs> and it's a tough thing to do because you've got to figure out what he's saying and he's not even there. <laughs> and I got to my store and I wasn't finished the argument and I drove around. And I, because I was really into him about this time. And I walked into my store a quarter to nine in the morning exhausted. <laughs> That's why I get up a little early in the morning and do what I do. And I read other books. I read stuff by Vincent Peale. I read stuff by Emmett Fox. I even read the Bible. I know it's not conference-approved literature, <laughs> but I take a chance of it. <laughs> And I do it every morning, no matter where I am. And a beautiful thing happened to me one morning. When I was doing my reading, I have a little granddaughter. I have two little granddaughters, but the oldest one used to live about just outside of Toronto. And every time I went through Toronto... I would go and see my family, and this little gal would be always ready to come home with me. One time she came home on the plane with me, and the first morning she was home, I was in doing my reading, and she knocked on the door. And babe said, you can't go in there, honey, because Gramps is doing his reading. And he says, she said, I have something to tell him. So I said, let her come in, and she came in, and I took her up on my knee, and I explained to her what I was doing. She was only three years old at that time. And then I said, what did you want to tell me, honey? She said, I just want to tell you that I love you. See, I don't know whether that means anything to you. But what it means to this old hard rock drunk is that I now can accept love. And I can give it. Pretty beautiful thing. I have another little granddaughter that takes just as much of my time as she wants. <laughs> and then I have a, a little grandson. And he's my pal. And everywhere I go, he goes with me. We spend a lot of time together. 
And not too long ago, he and I were having a car washed, and he suggested that we get some Kentucky Fried Chicken for Granny for supper, because he likes Kentucky Fried Chicken. (laughs) (laughs) So we bought the Kentucky Fried Chicken, and we got home, and the grandchildren have a little table and chairs at our house, and Jason said, well... Gramps, I want you to eat with me. So I sat down at his table and he said, you know what I want to be when I grow up, Gramps? And I said, what? And he said, I want to be a grandpa. <laughs> and he said, I want to own a store and I want to be the boss. That may not mean anything to you. But what it means to me is that a little kid wants to be like me. And that's a big thing for me. And you see, I could have lost all of that. And I almost did. And then it told me in the 12th step, that I could have a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And I had to try to carry the message to the alcoholic and that I had to practice these principles in all my affairs. Spiritual awakening to me was simply a personality change. The fact that I could be here tonight fact that I can walk into a room this afternoon and the boys from the committee ask me if I would do what I'm doing right now. And the fact that I can say with gratitude in my heart that I'd love to is a different person than I used to be. For I didn't do too much for anybody else unless I got paid for it. And then it says we tried to carry this message to the alcoholic that still suffers. And you know this is a bad deal. Because so many people do not understand it. So many people are so concerned about the people who are still out there drinking. That don't want to stop. And we forget about the people. And I guarantee right in this room tonight there's somebody that's suffering. That there's somebody. You may be an Alanani, you may be an Alatina, you may be an Alcoholics Anonymous. But you've got a football in your stomach. And you're suffering. Before we leave here tonight, let's just Put an arm around somebody beside us. Tell them that you want them, that you need them. Tell them that you love them. Because you see, the alcoholic that still suffers, or the person that still suffers, could be the person right in this room. For you see, there's something wrong with AA today. It's growing so fast that we're forgetting sponsorship and we're bringing people to Alcoholics Anonymous.
and we're dumping them in there. And they're sick and they're scared and they're lonely. And they don't know what to do. If you're not doing any 12-step work, just look at some person standing in a corner some night and walk over and tell them we're glad to have you here and we love you and we want you and we need you. And it says practice these principles in all our affairs. I like to tell this story about how easy it is. You watch the people at the conference. Watch them this weekend. You know, kissing and hugging and rubbing up against and <laughs> loving each other, you know. And it's really great. Glad to see you and shaking each other's hands. My God, it's nice. But what's going to happen tomorrow or Monday? When we get back out in that cruel old world with those civilians. <laughs> this is when we practice the principle. What's going to happen when you get driving home and you get heading down that old freeway and you got a long ways to go? And that sweet little Alnon gal beside you says, My God, I forgot my suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you practice the principle. <laughs> and you turn around to get it and you go back and you're speeding a little bit. You're going over that 55 miles an hour. You're allowed to drive down here because we won't let you have enough gas. <laughs> And all of a sudden, there's a fella comes with a black and white car and some kind of a thing up top, and he gives you a ticket. <laughs> and you say to that sweet little Alan gal, if you hadn't left the suitcase, <laughs> that's when you practice the principle. Two miles from home, you run out of gas. <laughs> and the suitcase comes up again. <laughs> Those are the principles I think they're talking about. The ability to live with other people and to love other people. And I heard a story about a sweet Alan Al woman. She was probably from this area because she had a lot of money. <laughs> and she was trying to sober her dear old husband up and she just couldn't do it. And she decided to take him on a trip. And she took him overseas. And he was drunk when they got on the plane, and he got drunker on the plane, and he got drunker when they got over there. And she took him for a walk, and they came to one of these big wishing wells. If any of you have been to Europe, you've seen them, huge things. And they stood up in there, and they threw their money in, they made their wish. And the poor damn drunk, he fell in and drowned. <laughs> and you know what that sweet little Alan gal said? Holy hell, this thing really works. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was this little Alan gal that got in the bus one day and she's sitting there and she said, oh God, I, I forgot to pay the bus driver. There was a lady sitting beside her and she said, well, if the bus driver's not worried about it, she said, why are you worried about it? She said, look, I just started a program that demands rigorous honesty. And she said, I have to pay my way. And the lady beside her didn't know her. She said, well, look, you know, 
save you 35 cents and buy yourself a halo, you know. <laughs> no, she said, I have to be honest. And she jumped up and she went and paid her way and she come back and she said to her newfound friend, she said, I told you honesty paid off. I gave him a dollar and he gave me change for five. <laughs> but they tell us about those principles that we learn in those beautiful 11 steps. And they are beautiful. And I've been privileged to be allowed to live those to the best of my ability. And I hope tonight that something I may have said or Julian may have said has helped somebody at this roundup. And I want to thank the committee for having such a big crowd that it gave me a chance to speak. <laughs> <laughs>